A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is a History of Europe Key Battles podcast, the Battle of the Boyne of 1690. In the last episode I described the events of the Glorious Revolution of 1688, when William, Prince of Orange, invaded England. King James II had become deeply unpopular, principally due to his ambitions to strengthen the status of Catholics in his realm. When William landed on the shore of southern England, he triggered a flood of defections from James's camp to his own, and coincided with anti-Catholic uprisings around the country. James, with the memory of the execution of his father, Charles I, was terrified and fled the country, allowing William to proceed smoothly into London and to take over the reins of government. He and his wife, Mary, daughter of James, became joint regents, although in reality it is William who became effective ruler. The Glorious Revolution is often hailed as a bloodless coup, justified by popular support. And it is true that the number of those killed in the invasion was relatively small, probably less than a hundred. However, it did help contribute to conflicts in Scotland, and in particular Ireland, where many people lost their lives. Today I focus on the so-called Williamite Wars of Ireland, 1688-1691, to of which the most iconic event is the Battle of the Boyne of 1690. But it is also important to consider the events in the wider European context, which I will partially do today, and more so in the following episodes which will describe the wider Nine Years' War. Since the late 18th century, the Battle of the Boyne has been commemorated by Irish Protestants on or around the 12th of July, and is marked today by a public holiday in Northern Ireland, where about half the population is from a Protestant background, and the other half Catholic. Large parades are held by the Orange Order and Ulster Loyalist marching bands, streets are bedecked with British flags and bunting, and large towering bonfires are lit. These parades are controversial and in the past have been accompanied by violence, but less so since the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. The origins of the Williamite Wars go back to at least the years 1601 to 1603, when the English put down a rebellion in Ireland, supported by Spain and were able to secure control of the island. 
The Treaty of Medifont of 1603 marked the end of a war called Tyrone's Rebellion, also called the Nine Years' War, but not to be confused with the late 17th century Nine Years' War, 1688-97, as I say, to be covered next in this podcast. Many of the defeated Irish lords left the country to seek support for a new uprising, their departure known to history as the Flight of the Earls. However, most were never to return. What followed was the plantation of Ulster, the organised colonisation of Ireland, especially the north, by people from Great Britain during the reign of King James I. Later, in the 1640s, after the execution of King Charles I, the Commonwealth Government, led by Oliver Cromwell, responded to another uprising in Ireland with violence perpetrated by both local Catholics and Protestants. Again, the English government were able to reassert their authority and the position of the local Protestant landlords, but only after renewed bloodshed, the most famous instance being the sieges of Drogheda and Wexford. Defeat for the Irish was followed by severe punishment in the form of confiscation of the estates of Roman Catholic landowners. When Charles II was restored to the throne in 1660, he did little to alleviate the conditions of Catholics in Ireland. But his brother James, who succeeded him in 1685, did bring a change of fortunes. First he elevated a nobleman, Richard Talbot, to the title of Earl of Tyrconnell, then in 1686 promoted him to the rank of Lieutenant General, effectively making him Irish Commander-in-Chief. Torbert eagerly pursued a policy of increasing Catholic influence in the Irish army. He established his own clientele of Catholic officers, many of whom were tied to him by friendship or marriage. At the same time, Catholics were also given positions of high prominence in the judiciary and parliament. The Earl of Tyrconnell continued his rapid rise to power when in 1687 he persuaded James to recall the Irish Viceroy, the Earl of Clarendon, and have himself appointed as Lord Deputy of Ireland, effectively sealing his position as local governor. He was a representative of the Old English, that is, the English, Welsh and Norman settlers who had come to Ireland following the conquest during the 12th century. Until Queen Elizabeth I and then Cromwell confirmed English Protestant domination, they were the dominant class, but continued adherence to Roman Catholicism saw them lose their positions of authority to Protestant New English settlers. The collapse of King James I's government in the Glorious Revolution left Tyrconnell in a difficult situation. William was never going to accept his drive to remove Protestants from positions of authority in Ireland. Also, his army was depleted, as about half had been transferred by James to England to try and counter William. Some soldiers were incarcerated, although most were able to eventually find their way back to Ireland, either directly or via France. In the meantime, the Irish Protestants were restless, anxious about Tyrconnell's policy of favouring Catholics. 
William was pressed by his advisers to move against Ireland as quickly as was practical, but the position in England was still unsure. Instead, he investigated a diplomatic settlement by sending as an envoy Richard Hamilton, one of James's ex-officers with connections to Ireland, who was then in captivity in London. But as soon as Hamilton arrived in Dublin, it was clear he had no intention of helping any type of negotiation, and after appraising Tyrconnell of the situation in London, urged him to take up arms to help James regain his throne. Between 1685 and 1688, 7,000 Protestant soldiers had been sacked from the Irish army and replaced by Roman Catholics. Only two infantry battalions retained significant Protestant components. One of those was led by the experienced officer of Viscount Montjoy, a charismatic Ulsterman who sat on the Irish Privy Council and was well regarded, especially in the north of Ireland. Tyrconnell wanted to get rid of Mountjoy. His method was to send him to Paris on the pretense of a diplomatic mission, but was in fact a trap. Tyrconnell sent secret letters separately to Paris suggesting that Mountjoy should be arrested, which he duly was, and then thrown into the Bastille prison. James II had been given residence by Louis XIV in the palace of Saint-Germain, a little northwest of Paris. In the months following James's flight from England, a trickle of his supporters followed him, a mixture of Irish, English and Scotsmen, most of them Catholic and all unwilling to trade their allegiance to William. Together they would become known as Jacobites, taken from the word Jacobus, Latin for James. Except for getting rid of a rival leader, Tyrconnell's main aim in Paris was to request help. The Irish army was poorly equipped and inexperienced, so without assistance William would probably be able to reassert English and Protestant control over Ireland without great difficulty. Louis sent two officers to Ireland to review the situation. William of Orange and Louis XIV were bitter rivals. Indeed, William's main motivation for the Glorious Revolution had been to ensure that England backed him in his long-running conflict with the French king. War had reignited on the continent in late 1688 when Louis invaded territory to the northeast, which threatened the Dutch Republic. The French Royal Council debated whether to provide aid to the Irish. The Marquis of Louvois questioned the sense of diverting military resources away from Flanders and the Rhineland, but Louis was persuaded to encourage Catholic resistance to William in order to distract English forces away from the continent. He declared he would fund a war in Ireland and send a number of senior French officers to oversee the campaign. James was a broken man, and may well have preferred to stay in Saint-Germain, but his host, protector and paymaster, Louis XIV, was not prepared to waste a useful asset. Contrary to French hopes, the Glorious Revolution had failed to foment a civil war in England, but a satisfactory substitute, which France could exploit, was about to occur in Ireland. 
If the campaign went particularly well and Ireland was reconquered, then it would serve as a base from which James could invade Scotland and England, putting William under further pressure. On the 12th of March 1689, James landed at Kinsale in southern Ireland with 22 ships. Among the French delegation was Jean-Antoine de Mesme, Count de Vaux, who had been appointed as Louis' ambassador to James, and would send letters to Paris to keep the French king up to date with events. James reached Dublin on the 24th of March, where he was given a lavish welcome. As writes Gerard Fitzgibbon in his book, Kingdom Overthrown, Ireland and the Battle for Europe, quote, the roads were freshly gravelled and lined with soldiers, lush colourful tapestries were hung overhead, and musicians performed an open-air stage all along the King's route. Church bells, instruments and a symphony of cheers rose up over the alleys and rooftops of the capital. When James's procession finally reached Dublin Castle, the cannons fired a tremendous salute. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. James appointed a raft of new privy councillors, including the military commander, Patrick Sarsfield, and James's illegitimate son, James Fitzjames, the Duke of Berwick. He also summoned the Irish Parliament, which announced that his English counterpart could no longer legislate for Ireland. James had a difficult balancing act to play. He was obliged to please his Irish hosts, but he did not want to do so at the expense of provoking the population of England. In truth, he shared different objectives from Tyrconnell, who sought independence for Ireland, but the two men found enough common cause to work together. Tyrconnell also declared it illegal for anyone outside the army to carry arms, ostensibly aimed at robbers and thieves, but principally had in mind the Williamite rebels in Ulster. James was also briefed on the campaigns to subdue the rebellion. The Protestant population were increasingly anxious about Tyrconnell's policy of disadvantaging them. They feared losing their property or even a repeat of the massacres inflicted upon their community in 1641. So in late 1688, many Protestants fled to England. Others chose to form armed defence associations in places such as Down, Antrim and Amarg. Resistance in the north was widespread and centred mainly around the towns of Derry, Enniskillen, Sligo and Hillsborough, a few miles south of Belfast. In 
There, an armed group was formed among the Protestant gentry, who began to raise their own troops, seize weapons and stockpile supplies. Envoys were dispatched to London to request armed support. Shortly after William and Mary's coronation, the Hillsborough unit decided to attack the Jacobite garrison of Carrickfergus on the eastern shore of Ireland, just north of Belfast. The attack was a failure and demonstrated how ill-prepared the Ulster rebels were for war. In March 1689, Tyrconnell sent Richard Hamilton north to assert control. The Catholic army and Ulster rebels confronted each other at the village of Dromore in County Down. But before combat could be joined, the Protestants turned and fled. The Jacobites also succeeded in swiftly seizing Hillsborough from the rebels. As Hamilton's army looted its way through eastern Ulster, Protestant refugees fled. The more affluent fled the country, while others sought refuge in the fortified settlements of Derry and Enniskillen. To quote the author and historian John Childs, quote, In pitiful, stormy weather, the roads deep in mud and scarcely passable, the Protestants abandoned their homes and trailed into Enniskillen, with pitiful lamentations and with little or no provisions to sustain them. Many were starving, filling all corners of the tiny town. End quote. In April 1689, Richard Hamilton's forces closed in on the city of Derry, with another Jacobite army on its way, led by James in person, determined to assert his authority in the north. The Jacobites had earlier, in December, made one attempt to take Derry. Then the city governor, Robert Lundy, was about to surrender when a group of apprentices decided to take matters into their own hands. They seized the city keys and locked the gates. The townspeople's mood was clearly determined to resist, and the Jacobites turned back. Now in April, the men and women of Derry faced a much larger army. There were now roughly 20,000 people crammed inside the city walls, less than half able to fight. Many were inclined to accept Hamilton's terms. But on the 18th of April, when negotiations were still ongoing, fate took a hand. Shouts were heard from the city walls that a Jacobite army was approaching, despite Hamilton's assurance that they would keep away. James, with his army, unaware of the terms of the truce, arrived at Bishopsgate on the southern side of the city. Though probably just a misunderstanding, it looked every part like Jacobite treachery to the Derrymen, and amid panicked cries that the besiegers had broken their word, the gunners on the wall opened fire, and James's army retreated. As word spread around Derry of plans by Robert Lundy's council to surrender, a riot almost broke out. The desperate townspeople flocked around an officer by the name of Adam Murray, the head of a cavalry force of some 400. It was at this moment that he is believed to have shouted what would become Derry's epitaph, No Surrender. Lundy was deposed in a coup and a new council of war was put together, which resolved to resist at all cost. The gloves off, the siege of Derry began in earnest. Few held out much hope that the city could survive a siege of any duration. His fortifications had been built with the surrounding Gaelic Irish in mind, not modern weaponry. While the city was perched on a steep hill and surrounded almost entirely by a defensible river and marsh, 
It was also encircled by even higher ground, from which it was an easy target of enemy bombardment. Furthermore, it was chronically overcrowded. Hunger and disease soon became a serious problem for the besieged. The Jacobite army was also suffering from disease and had its supply lines stretched. They also possessed little ammunition or siege equipment, so found it difficult to break through by force, and resorted to trying to starve out the city. Hamilton directed the construction of a boom and several artillery positions across the River Fyle to prevent any Williamite supply ships from coming to the city's aid. The Derrymen made several sallies to attack the besiegers and achieved some success, but with both sides winning small victories, a stalemate set in. Frustrated by the failure to make a breakthrough, the French commander, Conrad de Rosen, ordered local Protestants to be herded into the no-man's land between the besiegers and besieged. He hoped that their co-religionists would take in the poor men and women rather than allow them to starve, and so place an ever greater strain on Derry's already precarious supply problems. To his credit, James, on hearing of this savage tactic, reversed the decision and relieved de Rosen of his command. Eventually, after more than a hundred days of siege, Williamite ships succeeded in breaking through the boom under heavy gunfire and delivered much-needed provisions to desperate defenders. The Jacobites now realised it was impossible to take the city, and reluctantly lifted the siege. At the same time, the siege of Enniskillen was also raised. Writes Neil Hegarty in his book Story of Ireland, quote, The siege of Derry marks the apotheosis of the Ulster Protestant tradition of defiance in the face of adversity. Quite apart from this profound symbolic resonance, However, the event was of some political significance too, for its duration and its ultimate failure had significantly weakened James's position in Ireland. End quote. James received further bad news from Scotland that his friend and leader of the Scottish Jacobites had died in a battle on the slopes of Kilicranky near Blair Athol in Perthshire. Within months of the battle, Jacobite fortunes had collapsed in Scotland. Then, on the 18th of August, a Williamite invasion fleet landed in Bangor Bay near Belfast. It contained close to 10,000 men, including regiments of Dutch Blue Guards and Huguenots from France, which together with existing Williamite troops in Ireland totaled some 20,000. The majority of the newly arrived soldiers were English, who had hastily been assembled in less than six weeks. The army was led by Friedrich Hermann, Duke of Schomburg, a 75-year-old veteran who had fought in most European wars of the preceding half-century. They first marched into Belfast and then took the coastal town of Carrickfergus after an eight-day long siege. King James's French advisers counselled a withdrawal into the west of Ireland, but James would not give up Dublin so easily. The main body of his army moved north as far as Drogheda, while the Duke of Berwick was detached with a column of troops to delay Schomburg's advance. Berwick began a systematic policy of destruction, 
burning newly to the ground and damaging roads and bridges in order to impede the Williamites' progress. The Jacobite and Williamite armies met at Dundalk in County Louth, about halfway between Belfast and Dublin. Many of Schoenberg's staff pressed him to attack, but he opted to remain within his defences. After some desultory fire, the Jacobites retired, and the season ended without a pitched battle. Schoenberg's men lacked tents, foods and clothing, and having chosen the campsite on low marshy ground, disease spread quickly in the Williamite army, killing nearly 6,000 men before they withdrew to winter quarters in November. My name is Carl Rylott, and you've been listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. I hope you can join me next time to cover the Battle of the Boyne and the Battle of Algrim. Until then, all the best and goodbye.